Welcome to Grow Your Influence Tree with your host, Leonard Kim. This is the show especially for those that want to be among the top influencers of the world. We'll help you build your brand, tell the most compelling story, build your reputation and grow your audience, and attract the top clients and customers. Listen to the experts. Think like they do, and you'll be on your way. Now, here's Leonard Kim. Hey everyone, Leonard Kim here, and on the line with us today we have Paul, and we're going to be discussing an interesting topic in regards to the new Jim Crow. But before we get into that, um, Paul, do you want to take a moment to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about what you are and what kind of attracted you to this book? Sure. Um, my name is Paul. I uh, got off of criminal probation um, in, earlier this year, and uh, I had been on it for uh, pretty, most of my adult life, either on pro- criminal probation or on the run. Um, but this is sort of a deep dive into um, the mass incarceration system uh, from the specific, you know, from from the uh, viewpoint of, of the black community. Um, I've been fascinated with this for years, just because of its personal relevance to me, but also just the more that I experienced of the criminal justice system, uh, the, the less sense it made, more or less. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, makes a lot of sense. I'm, and I'm, and then, um, this book stuck out to you in what way? Uh, did you hear about it? Was it something that um, your friends were discussing? Was it something that you came across in your research? Or how did you come by it? So I think I either already own this or I I really picked it up for a a school project. I, I'm a public historian, I'm still a student, and I picked it up to write about uh, civil liberties. Hmm. And something fascinating there is that the ACLU, who actually, that, that is uh, who the author of this had previously worked for, they were the ones that really used the... the the civil suit system within the United States to be able to push the courts to enforce the Bill of Rights. So before 1920, uh, the Bill of Rights was not enforced by the courts in the way that we understand in, in the modern era. Hmm. Yeah, I can um, see that. Well, it, it gets, it, it's not as simple as the Bill of Rights was not enforced, but rather like the, the courts, as we understand them now, uh, did not exist. Like, it's an anachronism to try and place you know, the courts in their current position onto readings of history. Yeah, um, I, I believe a long time ago, the world kind of operated a lot different than it does today. Nowadays, there seems to be a little bit more structure, a lot more courts uh, established. Um, back then, I don't think it was like that, if you want to kind of take us through what it was kind of like back then. Sure. Um, so, for context, uh, the Constitution doesn't actually give a lot of the powers to the courts that they currently have. Uh, it was a very slow process where really over hundreds of years, the, the courts, in effect, gave themselves this power through the way that the... the legal system works here, where it's based on English law, where uh, case law is almost paramount to the power of laws. And that's not how every country's court system works. So it got more powerful over time. That makes sense. Um, The courts do seem to have a lot of power nowadays. 
Um, when we're kind of looking at uh, the changes that have made, uh, been made throughout time, what do you think were some of the biggest impacts that gave the courts more power than they have uh, than they had in the past? Well, the big one happened reasonably early on, where the the Supreme Court fully they they uh, ruled on the constitutionality of of the law, and that was unprecedented at the time. They they did not have that. Uh, power enumerated for them inside the Constitution. So that was really a power that they gave themselves, and that's uh, called judicial review. Hmm. And between then and you know the, the tw- early 20th century, the courts served uh, a much more advisory role than what we really think of them now. It's like, uh, for example, states used to somewhat regularly either ignore Supreme Court rulings or not even attend uh, Supreme Court decisions that they were uh, you know, required to go to. And the, the Supreme Court didn't really have any mechanisms to deal with that. Uh, for example, Andrew Jackson, on the, on, on the national level, famously said once that the, Supreme, you know, the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court made a decision, now let's see him enforce it, uh, because... You know, as the exec- chief executive of the United States, as the president, he was fully able to just ignore the Supreme Court's decision and choose not to enforce it for them. Well, so what we've really seen over the last eighty or so years is that the the court system is able to really establish uh, establish its own mechanisms for enforcing its own precedents, so which is very close to a parallel uh, legal structure. It is, it's not Congress passing laws and then telling the courts to enforce it. It is the courts enforcing their own precedents, and then the legislature has to then step in if they want to be able to do anything about that. Yeah, it's, from what you've kind of described, it's kind of changed significantly. And um, would you find that that's a good thing or a bad thing for how uh, the courts have all this power now? Oh, it's. Cool. I, I would say it is quite bad. Mm. Um, a lot of the research I've been doing recently has been into uh, more or less how how the courts have very, uh, very slowly but very consistently sort of cut down the protections in the Bill of Rights in support of the war on drugs and then later the war on terror. As a, before you know, 2001, <clears throat> before the 90s even, there were significantly more sorts of legal arguments that could be used to try and limit the power of the police that are just not acceptable anymore because the court has, has ruled against those arguments. Hmm. So um, kind of these world events have shifted so then a lot of the... Uh, powers that were uh, being held into the people have kind of been um, glossed over a bit and more has kind of been given to the courts? Well, specifically to the police. Um, the courts, they are very, like, so I, I find it helpful to look at a particular dissenting opinion from one of these decisions, and this was uh, Terry v. Ohio in 1968. Okay. And I believe the, only, the I believe the single justice who dissented in that case was named Douglas J, and he um, 
he described the, the, the Supreme Court decision. He, he was a sitting member of the Supreme Court, and he described the court's decision as a step down the totalitarian path, um, hmm. specifically because it undercut, or rather, it expanded the powers that an individual police officer has to be able to enforce the law. Before 1968, the police did not have the ability to make unilateral decisions in the way that they do now, and that is perfectly normal, and it is the sort of the, the world that I've you know, grown up in. Um, I'm only you know, in my 20s. <clears throat> and this, this, it, it, that phrase particularly stuck out to me. Was, it was the totalitarian path. That was how a Supreme Court justice described the decision that the Supreme Court made. And interestingly, um, after 1968, after this decision, the, the incarcerated population of the United States, the, the number of prisoners the U.S. has, never dropped after this decision. So it really was a turning point in the establishment of the mass incarceration system that makes up most of what the justice system is now. So in 1968, what kind of happened that led the court to kind of decide upon this? It was the Civil Rights Movement. Oh, the Civil Rights Um, Movement happened? And then during the Civil Rights Movement, um, new laws and this new totalitarian path like kind of set forth. And from that date forward, there's never been a year in U.S. history where the number of incarcerations went down. Well, until 2015. Oh, wow. It's been dropping since then. But yeah, for, for about 40, you know, 37 years. Yeah, and, and not only did the flat number of people that are kept as prisoners increase, also the rate at which people are incarcerated has wildly increased. Um, for example, in, in the 70s and 80s, uh, 80s and 90s, there were times when the number of inca- uh, the, the rate of incarceration was three and four times what it had been before this 1968 decision. Oh, so it wow. wasn't an artifact of population increase. It was the courts were arrested, or the, the systems were arresting more people. So when it comes to like crime, so when it like comes to crime, like it's understandable if someone's like taking billions of dollars away from people, or even hundreds of millions, or like tens of millions. But I've heard of a lot of instances where people may have uh, got sent to jail for taking something at like a convenience store. Which, um, if you kind of think about the items at a convenience store, like they don't really cost that much. So it seems like, um. The uh, crimes that three, three strike laws were particularly bad about that. But they've rolled back those a little bit, but there are still some places that have them. But the idea being that it, so in, in the uh, reactionary fervor after the civil rights movement, a lot of states established laws where a, where a criminal was given a life sentence automatically after three, uh, three offenses. So you had situations where there were people who had had two offenses and then stole something and got caught for that, and then they received an automatic life sentence. 
Yeah, and I heard of situations where, like, um, this is just off the top of my head, but, like, people might steal something like an apple or something, like, super insignificant, and that could lead to a long sentence just because it was, like, the third time it happened, which is kind of crazy. Absolutely. And more generally, the way the system has operated is that once a person is inside the system, so they, they may be not given jail time but rather released on probation, they are much more likely to then be stuck in that system for the rest of their life. Mm. So we look a lot at incarceration numbers, but if you actually look at the total number of people that are directly controlled by the government through this system, so if you include probation and parole, the number drastically increases. There's like more than 15 million people in that category. And the, the, the highest the prison population ever got was 2.2 million. Oh, wow. So if you factor in 15 million people and there's, what, like 350 or so million people in the U.S.? It is an enormous portion of the population. And it's not evenly distributed over geography, over different regions. There are, like, some cities, and this is one of the things that the book really gets into, is that there are some cities where half of the entire population or half of the male population is on probation or parole. Wow. And this is almost exclusively uh, black areas or minority areas. And these are areas that have been under the control of systems like this going back to the nation's founding. And that's part of the argument of this book is that the, the modern mass incarceration system, the modern justice system is analogous to the Jim Crow era. Like yeah. the, the ways that people are reacting to this, the ways that people are treated, there are direct analogies that you can create that are, it's compelling, it's disturbing. It is like the, the way that we view rap videos now that glorify violence and crime are shockingly similar to like minstrel shows where people you know would wear blackface and play to these caricatures and that was an enormous part of the culture. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. Um, I read a bit about Jim Crow era and it was kind of wild what people were doing. Like, it, a lot of it was inhumane and um, a lot of people don't, like, they don't believe that Jim Crow actually went away even though laws were passed against it. And um, it sounds like what this book kind of does is describe how it's been uh, passed along to our current time and throughout history. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it goes a long way to explain why there is such generational poverty in the black community, because if you look at the dates of, of a lot of these things, you know, Jim Crow was strong, like into World War II. It wasn't, you know, it was what was the, the immediate backdrop of the civil rights movement. So you really can't look at a timeline and say, this is when black people were actually free to be able to participate in the American dream. And, and it, it goes an enormous way to explain, like, because people think of, well, you know, after slavery, <clears throat> then, you know, that was how long that black people had to be building wealth. And that's just not true. It's close to, like, the 1960s, and that is immediately 
when this this new system started. Oh, so I, I know in a lot of uh, communities, like um, nowadays, uh, people are kind of getting more in tune with money, finance, um, laws, and things like that. But it seems to be more of a recent movement. Um, even like back in the seventies, like uh, what what was kind of what was it kind of like back then? Because we discussed uh, nineteen sixty eight, but what was the seventies like? Well, so one of the things going on here is that rather than, as contrasted to a system like slavery, the the issue or the the um, goal of the system seems rather rather than being to exploit people's labor, it is what do you do when there are entire segments of the population that are not necessary for the economy, and and what do you do to those people? So there are, you know, enormous, like, there are more black people in jail that are forced to work than there ever were enslaved at any given time, just by uh, matter of, of scale. <clears throat> but the point of, of modern jails is not to be able to turn people into cheap labor, though they do do that. It's quite normal for, you know, somebody working in a jail of course, the, the prisoners do most of the labor in actually making a institution function, and they're paid, you know, 10 cents an hour, 20 cents an hour. <clears throat> and it gets even more indefensible when there's, you know, the practice of renting out prisoners to be able to, so like, when there's not enough migrants in a given year, prisons will rent out the prisoners as labor in these these farms and in these communities, <clears throat> I remember a uh, headline a little bit ago about how in Arizona there are some of some rural communities that are so dependent on this labor. Local representatives were referring to it at, like they, they said that if you took away the prison labor, then the economies of these cities would completely collapse. That is how dependent they are. Wow, that's but absolutely getting back to, crazy. Right, yeah, getting back, I kind of lost it, lost the, the thread there, but getting back to this idea that th- that is just a side benefit of the system, but rather the core goal, and this is the, the big difference between Jim Crow and slavery, was that, and, and yeah, the book goes into better detail than I can explain now, but this idea of what do you do with enormous unemployed populations? Because there, there is so little economic opportunity in so many of these ghettos that along with you know, half of the population being under government control directly, there's you know, upwards of 40% unemployment. And those two things are not coincidental. I can definitely see that. Um, it's about time for us to hop off to a commercial break and we can talk more about this upwards movement of unemployment. Uh, where can people find you online? So I considered making a site for this. Um, I'm really hesitant about tying my name to a lot of this uh, just fine, because no there, there are some very strange people online. <clears throat> but uh, I know that you retweeted the uh, graph that I just put up. So Probably my Twitter would be the best place to look at, though, of course, this is not a professional Twitter. This is just, I, I use the Twitter platform in order to be able to retweet other people that are saying things that I vaguely agree with. 
and that's uh, at Paul BB2. It's P A U L V as in Victor, B as in Boy Two. Awesome, and you can find me at uh, Mr. Leonard Kim on Twitter, and we'll be back after this commercial break. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for The Forbes Factor. We guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. Sustainable success is just around the corner. If you are an entrepreneur, business leader, or anybody looking for their next level of success, tune into Sustainable Success with host Chris Salem. Did you know that the path to success is a long path that started many years ago? The path you started on then determines what is happening now. Chris and his amazing guests in their field will help you navigate the path to sustainable success every Thursday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Influencers Channel. If you feel stuck, exhausted, or just unsure of how to handle everything at once that life is throwing your way, you'll want to listen to What's Important Now, Making Time for What Matters Most with Eva Medelec. Eva and her guests will help you learn to focus on the most important priorities in your life so you can handle them one at a time instead of being constantly overwhelmed. What's important now? Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. This is Grow Your Influence Tree. To reach Leonard Kim or his guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop a line by email to hello at leonardkim.com. Now, back to Grow Your Influence Tree. Hey, everyone. Leonard Kim here with Paul. And we've been kind of discussing a lot of the incidents that have happened throughout history. And one of the things that Paul kind of mentioned is uh, when the population gets down to a 20% unemployment rate, and what that kind of causes. Um, Paul, do you want to kind of uh, leave off where you left off? Right. Um, yes. Yeah. So an enormous portion of the United States is, is quite heavily segregated. And, you know, the, the neoliberal explanation for this is that, oh, people are just choosing to live with people like them. But that's just not true if you actually look at a lot of these, these black ghettos. They have existed almost continuously for, you know, 60 years, and then before that there were equivalents in other areas. <clears throat> and so in a lot of these places, 20% can be on the low end. They can get significantly higher than that. So I, <clears throat> I've been uh, sort of approaching this, even from just an economics lens, it's a horrifying situation, and it's part that you don't like to think about it being how America is, but we're sort of, you know, pretty decently aware that it is real. Like, we know that the majority of black people live in these all-black neighborhoods, and 
a, a lot of them came to be in you know the fifties and the sixties by the you know explicit practice of redlining, where black neighborhoods were sectioned off as less valuable, and the people that lived there less able to access financial services. <laughs> and it really gets into this uh, consistent pattern in in Black American history, where the ability to generate wealth and then to be able to pass that on to your, to your children is not a guarantee. It's, you know, the poverty among seniors, uh, especially in the black community, um, it has gone down over the last 50 years, but this is mostly just due to social security and it's not, the rates at which it changes are not comparable to their white counterparts. And it, it leads to situations where where you know there, there's it, it compounds over time. So in a way, in the way that you know my grandparents were able to have a home and to be able to live in it, and then to be able to sell it and be able to do things with that, that is not the normal experience. And what we're sort of the way I view it is that what we're kind of experiencing now as young people, there's a lack of access to economic opportunity is quite comparable to the experience of black Americans throughout American history. Hmm. So that's part of what has drawn me to exploring this particular lens of, of understanding. One of the consistent things you'll notice with studying American history is that if you want to see some of the, the worst that can happen, you look at what has been done to black Americans. I could, I could, like I could, I could see that. Like um, this community has been put through the ringer, and a lot of horrible things have kind of occurred in their lives. And it's unfortunate to see and to realize that history. And especially when you uncover all the things that uh, happen, it's uh, pretty heartbreaking. So seeing that happen, well, and what, go on. One of the ways to address this that, that you know that we go to that like rhetorically is what we think of is civil rights legislation and working through the courts and those are ways of addressing these problems that have really been kind of cut out from the the way that politics operates over you know the last thirty years really since the uh, Reagan's veto of the nineteen ninety one Civil Rights Act. Mm. I'm sorry, that is getting a little bit off topic. I I find things like that particularly frustrating, but part of his, you know, stated uh, reason for that was because racism was over in the 90s, and that just wasn't, wasn't true. But it is a sentiment that you run into over and over again that these are the problems of the past, and it's just, just not an accurate reflection of reality. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I can see why a lot of people thought racism could have been over in the 90s, but um, as people have used the internet over the past decade, two decades, that's um, not true. Like, um, 
you see a lot of people blatantly calling out other people for the color of their skin and for where they're from and so forth. And it's not a friendly environment that um, <clears throat> from... Uh, there's, a strong, there's a strong argument to be made that the difference between the 1990s and now is not that there are fewer racially-based uh, discrimination issues in the United States but rather that the ability to prosecute these violations of various you know, civil rights acts and legislation that is intended to address these problems, these disparities, they, they are not accepted in the courts anymore. So, for example, uh, in 2001, there was a case, Alexander V. Sandoval, or Sandoval, uh, it's a Spanish name, and... French guy, at least. And uh, his argument was that because Alabama had mandated that particular state services be carried out in English, so like tests for different things be done in English, this was discriminatory against Hispanics. And the courts didn't, didn't really address that argument. What they did was that they said he did not have standing to bring it to them because uh, under Title of the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1969 or 62, uh, the one in the 60s, that a private individual is not able to bring a suit against the government in order to enforce that part of the civil rights, civil rights legislation. And that the government has to be the one to do it. And so if there's not an attorney general willing to do it, it really just... It just reeks of hypocrisy to me because, you know, so many of these recent decisions, like with abortion and everything, are dependent on people bringing these private suits against the government and, and to take that sort of standing away from people trying to do it uh, in support of civil rights, I think is, is a rather clear message. Yeah, uh, it's not right where a person can't go to uh, claim there's uh, claim their rights and go to the court with what happened, and it's not fair how people were treated. So the argument basically goes that the reason we don't see big landmark uh, case decisions like how like what existed in the '60s and in previous generations to actually address a lot of these disparities is because the court has specifically made it so that you cannot do that. It is not because there is less of a need or fewer people willing to do that. So they so basically effect, put up like roadblocks so um, regular people can't go out there and do anything. Right. They, they can't go through the courts to be able to actually affect social change. And so, in effect, what, you know how I view it, what it has done is that people are, are, people are being cut out of the systems of power. Uh, the, these, the legal system, you know, in the same way that Congress eventually capped how many people uh, can actually serve in Congress, so that they are each representing, by comparison, vastly, you know, ten times as many people as the government was representing, you know, even 150 years ago. Yeah, you, you have not that many politicians out there, and um, with our representatives, when we think about it, like there's a large amount of people that one representative represents, which is kind of unfair. Absolutely, and and one of the 
you know, you could argue effects or maybe side effects if you're being generous of this is to vastly diminish the power of these underrepresented, underrepresented communities to be able to address the injustices they see in their everyday life through legitimate means. So it funnels people back into violent ways of solving societal issues simply because there is not legitimate mechanisms to be able to address these things. And that was a conscious uh, precedent choice by the courts and a policy choice by the legislature. Yeah, I mean, when you kind of grow up in a certain environment, it kind of becomes what you understand, and it's hard to kind of see past that environment unless uh, you have someone bringing you out of it to show you otherwise. So it kind of creates a system that kind of uh, eats upon itself, and it's not a good thing. Right. Um, One of the trends that I have noticed in reading about this is that there is this idea that if you can just document this stuff, if you can just prove to people how much suffering there is in the U.S., that then that automatically means that the people that listen will agree with you. And I think that that is an artifact of the Cold War. So one, one of the books that I point to to talk about this is The Other America. It was originally published in 1962. It was written by Michael Harrington. So uh, President Kennedy supposedly read this or you know, got a Cliff Notes version of it. And this inspired what became The War on Poverty. Which is, you know, that's great, but Michael Harrington was an avowed socialist. The book is not written in a socialist lens. It is sort of, it is is apolitical in a way that is, is, because the author is coming to it from a leftist view, in order to make it palatable to a mainstream audience, it is just sort of asking questions, basically. It's, 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 pointing out the, you know, the ghetto system, the mass incarceration system, and it's just sort of shrugging its shoulders because when you have authors that try to address these problems and don't do that, they do not have the kind of reach. So they, they, well, when, when uh, Harrington wrote this book, he said he expected to sell a few thousand copies, and it became the most popular uh, basically po- writing on poverty in America for, for a generation. And there's just not really an equivalent to that these days. So there is a diversity of opinion. <sighs> Sorry. Um, so I, I find that particularly frustrating because it is, it's a, a through line that I see through, through you know, Harrington, through Alexander's, and through a few of the other people that I've read, like uh, David Shipler, who's quite cool, you can follow him on Twitter, <laughs> um, that th- they approach these things from a leftist view, but cannot say, like, the, the final part of that argument of, we need to treat people better, which mm. is, it, it seems to be that the reason they don't do that is because, uh, anyway, I, I found that particularly frustrating, it's something I wanted to talk about, but I'm not entirely sure uh, what what can be done about that? Yeah, I can I can see that. And when you say that a lot of people are going out there and describing what's going on, but they can't say we have to go out there and treat people better. 
do you do you have any thoughts behind why that is, or is it just uh, frustrating? Where that's what I was just, trying to get at. That's basically yeah. what I was trying to get at. Is that I I think there's a the it's more than just a strong argument. I think it's it's pretty uh, it's it's reasonable to assert that this is down to anti-communist sentiments. Mm. Is that because at the same time a lot of this was going on. The Soviet Union was putting out propaganda about, hey, look, this is how they treat black people in America. It's quite bad. Look, this is this is an illegitimate government because of X, Y, and Z. And an entire, you know, two and a half generations over the last 80 years have gotten a full blast of caring about other people is a step away from communism. And whatever the the more individualistic version of that is. And it has deeply affected our culture so that people, you know, well-meaning people that are even trying to address these things the best they can have to acknowledge that sort of presence in the American psyche that the Soviet Union still has, even, you know, that it's been gone for 30 years. I, I can see that. A lot of people are scared of socialism, are scared of communism, well, rightfully so, because of all the countries that um, operated in that way. But being kind to people is not really an indicator of socialism or, or communism. That's uh, just being well, right. kind. I'm, I'm a, yeah, a little bit cynical and equating, you know, kindness with, with the, you know, the argument about the welfare state of, like, if you materially care for people then that, that is socialism. And I, I find that frustrating from a, a Christian point of view, but also just as an American. Yeah, I can, uh, I, can, I can see that. And, I mean, a lot of people in America, even when it comes to taxes, they don't feel that their money should go to help the less fortunate as well. And there's a lot of um, underlying thoughts and beliefs that people do have in general about a lot of things. So, uh, yeah. It, it is pretty frustrating. Um, anytime it, anyways, it's about time for us to hop off to a commercial break. Um, we'll, be okay. back, we'll be back after this short message. Voice America is available on your Google Connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. Get Unchained. Tune in every Monday for Jane Unchained on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Featuring nationally recognized, best-selling author, TV journalist, and social media influencer, Jane Velez Mitchell. This program takes you inside a trending lifestyle that's the next wave of human evolution. It all starts on your plate. If you want to revolutionize your life, get happier, more energized, then discover the secret. Tune in to Jane Unchained Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in to the Tony D'Urso Show with key influencers for entertaining and thought-provoking weekly discussions with some of the top stars in their fields. From business, sports, and science to entertainment, music, and literature, Tony's guests share their success and give their wisdom. If you're looking to manifest your vision and see how others have done so, be sure to listen to the Tony D'Urso Show every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencer channel. 
Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Class. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel with a replay on Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. This is Grow Your Influence Tree. To reach Leonard Kim or his guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop a line by email to hello at leonardkim.com. Now, back to Grow Your Influence Tree. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Grow Your Influence Tree. Leonard Kim here with Paul, and we've been kind of discussing a lot of different things that have... uh pretty much left a lot of people in America pretty frustrated. Um, Paul, you said you kind of went through the system yourself. Do you want to shed some light on that and what um, that experience is kind of like for people who might be unaware of what goes on? All right. Um, the, the first time I was arrested, I was 13, and this was from school. I was arrested from school uh, for, like, setting off a firecracker in the bathroom. Um, I, since then, I've been arrested... Ten times, and mostly for weed. But uh, in in my adult life, I have I spent five years on criminal probation, and two years on on the run from that. And that actually worked out rather well for me. Um, I had been in the system for like four years or so, <laughs> and I absconded for two years, mm. and. When I came back and I had made enough money to be able to hire a private attorney, so that was the, the really first time for me, it was before then I had been working with public attorneys, I was off of the probation within a year. Huh. <clears throat> so in that and time frame, you've probably seen a lot. I have about a total of one year in county jails to my life. Um, <laughs> though I've never actually been sentenced to jail time, it's only been a time served over and over and over again. Sort of thing. Hmm. Which uh, One of these was in Montgomery County, Maryland, and a system that they have there is that people who are homeless are incarcerated permanently. Um, like until the, the resolution of their case, they're not able to get out on bail. And that was the situation that I ended up in and I was uh, very not happy with it and absconded as soon as I got out. That's kind of crazy. Like, um, over in California, um, measures are taken to not arrest the homeless because of what could potentially happen in your state, it seems. Yeah, and, and Montgomery County is unusual for this. I've never heard of this anywhere else, really. Um, it's it's very much a class-based thing, mm-hmm. and it seeps into the culture. So, like, I had people who were offering, you know, saying, oh, yeah, my aunt will give you the address. You can't stay there, but they'll give you the address so you can give it to these guys, and so they'll let you out. Hmm. Uh, that sort of thing wasn't unusual at that, 
in in that environment where they're like, yeah, the, everybody knew that this was how the system operated and that one of the aspects of it was that when you don't have enough money, you're not able to get out to be able to make money. That, that it, it, is not fair. It's very sort of indicative of this sort of larger system where once you're in it, you are trapped. And so, like, part of what we've seen over the last 50 years is not only are more people are getting arrested, more people are getting arrested and held longer. Hmm. So, like, there's, like, this is arguably the origin of the absentee black father trope is just because so many men from the African-American community have been incarcerated for so long mm-hmm. that our society is, is aware of this, but then attributes it to personal failings rather than the, the system that is causing it. I, I can see that. Like, <clears throat> the system is kind of designed so people would fail. Yes, and it's weighted against African-Americans in a, in a measurable way. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of this uh, information, uh, at least from the legal, legal side, like the case law arguments, comes from the book The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander. And she was a lawyer, is a lawyer, and so she's able to expand on a lot of these sort of formal aspects that really until the last 15, 25 years, the legal community has been very hesitant about addressing uh, racial disparities in the criminal justice system because of its sort of proposed colorblindness. But if you actually look at the, the process, every step along the way, so like, you know, for, for example, with my experience, like I, I was painfully aware of how lucky I was able, like lucky I was to even be able to get out of that system and that an enormous number of my black and Hispanic peers are still in it. Like, mm. for example, when I reached out to two guys like a month or so ago that I had met a couple of years ago, cool people, and they're both on probation now. They had never been on probation in their lives, and they both are now. And I don't know how realistic it is to expect them to be able to get off of probation. Yeah, <clears throat> um, that's not good. Uh, no, it, it's it's horrific, and um, it, it's not getting better. So a couple of years ago, in 2015, the prison population finally started to shrink. Arguably, this was because states just ran out of the money to be able to continue funding these programs. It is astronomically expensive to be keeping however many jails there are. There's there's thousands. (laughs) It's astronomically expensive. Like I remember seeing uh, out of New York a while ago, there was a study basically saying it costs five times as much to keep somebody in jail than it does to simply give them a house and a job. Mm. And 
So I, that, that's part of why I find it particularly frustrating is because just from a meta, you know, from a looking at the entire picture standpoint, this is not a way of addressing problems. So like the, the criminal justice system is not reform oriented regardless of what it claims. And just pumping more and more money into more and more cops is exacerbating the problem rather than addressing it. Yeah, I can see that. And <clears throat> especially with the large amounts of money that kind of goes into the system, you kind of have people who are allegedly at the top of that, like wanting to keep the grasp on all that. Yeah. Um, I, I made a joke on Twitter a few years ago, just the, the I, I don't personally, I don't believe that local governments have the capacity to disarm their police. So like, the, the, you know, remember in, in 2020, there was the, the movement for defunding the police that has horribly failed. Uh, it has faced institutional resistance to the point where the police are getting more money rather than less. And this, it, it, it seems to be consistent, like looking back, and so much of it relies on this veneer of, well, these people are criminals anyway. And that just doesn't line up with, so, so for example, uh, Research has consistently shown that white, white communities commit crimes at the same rate as black communities, but are not incarcerated at nearly the same rate. And that is arguably the, the reason why the system is able to function is because if you were to enforce uh, the laws in white communities in, to the same degree as they are in black communities, the police and the courts would face political repercussions in a way that just these underrepresented, incredibly poor black communities are not able to mount any, like, any sort of resistance in the same kind of way. Yeah, and I, th I think a lot of uh, TV shows nowadays are c trying to like depict that, where how um, some people are able to get off scot-free in situations, but other people are deeply punished and kind of showing what's going on into the system. I don't know what it actually does to change things, but it's at least bringing light to kind of what happens. Uh, so over the break, you were asking me what I think can be done about this sort of thing. And, you know, in broad strokes... I think what the ACLU is doing now, like as opposed to 15 years ago, is, is good. They're, they're moving in the right direction, so that is a good organization to reach out to and to support. But even on a local level, um, and, and it's hard to find your voice after uh, being in a system like this, but I think that is, is really what we have to do. So, for example, I'm... I'm the local town near me has an incredibly large police force. It, it's a town of like 1,200 people, and they've got like 20 cops and meter maids. It's absolutely ridiculous. And it's because they're able to take money from the, the college students, from the university students that are right next door. <clears throat> and when you see things like that, you're able to annoy the public officials about it, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, 
posting on Facebook groups, being vocal, and carrying out letter writing campaigns, like right to the city council saying, hey, you have too many cops. This is hurting society. They're taking too much money and paying these people to do what they're doing is hurting everyone. And just having those opinions in the local areas is invaluable. I think that that's really the direction where a lot of this is going, where it, it just relies on grassroots. It relies on being involved on the local level and not backing down. Like this is scary. Um, this opens you up to threats from the police. This is potentially dangerous and there's not really a way around that. The police are incredibly dangerous. They have an incredible amount of power in the communities that they are in. And it, it crosses political lines. So it's not a Democrat or Republican issue. It is a people in these communities with power who trust the police and everybody else. Mm. Uh, each community is kind of different. Some communities heavily entrust the police. A lot of communities don't have that trust in the police. So um, it, it varies uh, by location. But I can definitely see what you're saying sure. from being in the situation where uh, uh, for you being incarcerated, for me having situations where I've had a uh, loss of job, loss of work, and other types of issues as well, where it's just hard to kind of go out there and find your voice and to speak up about what you believe to be true and to um, start talking about the things that you find dear to you. But there's a way for everyone to kind of go out there and do uh, what they can, whether it's reaching out to the ACLU or um, potentially even doing some of the things that you mentioned. But there's a voice that everyone could really go out there and find out there to prevent this new Jim Crow from happening. Um, what's some books you would recommend for some people to get more insight on what's going on? Absolutely. So... A good primer that I've picked up recently, which you can find generally pretty cheaply. Uh, I went to thrift books for a lot of these. As I mentioned it earlier, The Other America, Poverty in the United States. It was originally published in 1962, and there's a 50th anniversary edition that came out you know, within the last 10 years. <laughs> um, somebody else that I've discovered recently is, is David K. Shipler, who only has... Uh, like 82 followers on Twitter, which completely blew me away because his books are incredible. And two of his that I picked up are The Rights of the People, How Our Search for Safety Invades Our Liberties, and Rights at Risk, The, liberty, uh, the Limits of Liberty in Modern America. And these really get into the war on terror and the war on drugs, how the court has supported these, and how that really goes against the, the idea of what a court is supposed to do. Well, I wanted to thank you for the book recommendations and for sharing all of your insights and what's been going on in the world. Um, if anyone's in these communities, make sure to check out these books so you can learn more about what to do to kind of uh, put up some preventative measures to kind of uh, counteract what's going on. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Grow Your Influence Tree. Thank you, for uh, Paul, for sharing your insights from the book as well. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for making us part of your week. 
Listen for Grow Your Influence Tree with Leonard Kim every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Stand out, stand apart, and become a top influencer. We'll see you here next week.